Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, you have Vikram here from Quantlayer. I'm joined by Fizan, also known as The Wizard. Hey, everyone. So normally we would get started with crypto news right away. But since we had our short selling podcast from a couple episodes ago, and then what transpired in the Tesla slash Elon Musk Twitter sphere, I think we just have to comment on it. Yeah, it's been an interesting day. (laughs) So I don't know, sometime in the afternoon, uh, I saw a tweet come in from Elon saying, I'm considering taking Tesla private at $420, funding secured. And I, this was I think like totally out of the blue, right? This not, no one had been discussing this or like it's uh, pretty out there. Yeah, pretty out there. I don't follow the story as closely as a lot of other people do. But if, I mean, if we had heard anything about any kind of yeah. buyout, taking private type it of thing, it seemed like people were surprised in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the company's arguably very expensive. So I don't think M&A was ever on the table. Like who would buy them? What automobile company would buy them or who else would buy them? So this came as a shock for so many reasons. So he continued, you got it. We'll, we'll link all these in the show notes, but you have to read through these because they are, they're hilarious. So his next tweet, his follow-up was, my hope is all current investors remain with Tesla, even if for private would create special purpose fund enabling anyone to stay with Tesla. Already do this with Fidelity SpaceX investment. Interesting. Yeah. And actually, I think his his tweet after the funding secured one was a smiley face. And then he got into details. Yeah. So how, how does this work exactly? Like keeping everyone that wants to stay with Tesla on as an investor? So uh, I think there's definitely going to be more details there. So they finally put out, okay, basically what happened was he announced this. If I was trading full time, I would have seen this and immediately gotten involved. But you, if you looked at the chart, it, it was moving kind of slowly. And then maybe pick, maybe people thought it was a joke or people weren't paying attention or I, I don't know. Uh, Cause this is the kind of thing that it should be up immediately. Uh, stock was, you know, in the three or low to mid three hundreds. Then it was around three sixty six, and then it got halted. So uh, which means like no one can trade it. So after yeah. it was halted, uh, they finally put out a press release and it's on their Tesla blog, taking Tesla private. So I'll just read through it because it's, it's pretty interesting. So they say, as a public company, we are subject to wild swings in our stock price that can be a major distraction for everyone working at Tesla, all of whom are shareholders. Being public also subjects us to the quarterly earnings cycle that puts enormous pressure on Tesla to make decisions that might be right for a given quarter, but not necessarily for right for the long term. Finally, as the most shorted stock in the history of the stock market, being public means there are a large number of people who have the incentive to attack the company. So it, it sounds like they don't want to deal with the short term associated with you know hitting your quarter and hitting your short term metrics. And they also don't want to deal with all the shorts. And, you know, I can sympathize with that. If you have a, there are a lot of companies out there that, you know, these shorts get involved in that they end up spending 
a bunch of time just defending themselves against these shorts. And it's probably really distracting from their core business. Yeah, a couple of questions there. So I get them not wanting to worry about, you know, their shorts. And I imagine for the employees too, like if they're, because I, you know, if they're largely compensated in stock, then that stabilizes their compensation as well. But how does he arrive at this $420 number? Is that, and is that higher or lower than you would expect a premium to be? First of all, it's 420. So it's, of course, could be a nod to like marijuana. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that's his style, but he's kind of a crazy, hilarious it, it guy. So maybe is. that's like he's, he sells flamethrowers on Twitter. Right, right. <laughs> if you sell <laughs> flamethrowers on Twitter, you're probably going to do a nod to 420 as your uh, buyout price. It was, uh, you know, around, I think he, in his letter, he said it was around a 20% premium to where their stock was around earnings. On a percentage basis, it feels a little low. You know, a lot of takeout private offers, you know, see like 30% from the day it closed. So I, you know, it only closed up about 10% is trading up 10% or so. There's still a discount to 420 right now. So I don't know, maybe like 15, 20% feels a little bit low, but as far as overall percentage goes of M&A and going private transactions, but it probably falls in line with a valuation that investors were willing to pay. So the way he actually wants to structure this thing is uh, so that he has he he mentioned this in the letter too. He says, first, I would like to structure this so that all shareholders have a choice. Either they can stay investors in a private Tesla, or they can be bought out at four hundred twenty dollars per share, which is a twenty percent premium over the stock price following our Q two earnings call, which had already increased sixteen percent. My hope is for all shareholders to remain, but if they prefer to be bought out, then this would enable that to happen at a nice premium. There's no real details in here about, you know, what this going private transaction is like. I mean, he just kind of mentions it. It's kind of like the Fidelity SpaceX deal. I don't, I'm not familiar with that, so I can't comment too much on it. But it will be interesting to see what he does here. So first off, like in general, it's hilarious, right? Because it blows the short thesis out of the water if they take the company private at like all time highs. And it leaves a lot of these angry shorts upset. Again, uh, we talked about the angry short like a couple episodes ago. So uh, in the last earnings call, there was still a lot of concerns around cash flow because they were burning through so much cash. Yep. And if you were short going into it, you know, you lost some money because the stock popped. But a lot of shorts might put on a position after the quarter too because uh, they're like, okay, this has to be the top. I'm going to put my short on here and I'm going to watch it carefully. So I imagine like there are a handful of these shorts that um, we'd have to look at numbers. I don't know what short interest looked like after the uh, overall short interest looked like after the earnings call. But I imagine there are a handful of people that put a bigger short position on and just got, you know, destroyed now. So they were just wrong. Like if this deal ends up going through, they're just wrong. So there's this one uh, Twitter user. He's a fundamental slash value trader. So it has his own podcast names, Quote the Raven. So uh, he quoted, when Elon Musk's initial tweet happened, he, he tweeted, one, uh, okay, seems like a great time to be long. One, either tweet is accurate and you have about 15% upside assuming a deal can even get done. Two, Musk claims he was hacked and adds a new layer of fuckery to the Tesla story. Three, 
Musk is joking and has no clue he just committed securities fraud. <laughs> and then he went in he went into like a tweet storm because he was probably, you know, just like, what is going on? Like so many other people. His next tweet. Okay. Somebody get me any info on whoever is backing this Tesla takeover offer. I don't care if they're publicly traded or not. I'll go so far as to short the brand of soda they drink just to get exposure to them as a counterparty. (laughs) So Twitter's going crazy. Everyone's going nuts. And it's within reason. It's like, I think it's totally reasonable to go nuts about this because it's uh, the company is so expensive overvalued depending on who you talk to, but just on an earnings and cash flow basis, it's a very expensive stock. Um, it's nothing to do with the future is. So it's just who's going to pay for this, you know? And then I think we saw a little like talk about, uh, I know we were chatting about this phase on earlier and you mentioned like, what if it's a country, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know exactly how a lot of these countries invest, but I know like Tesla's like, there's very high, I think, penetration of electric vehicles in countries like Norway where people are generally uh, wealthy, cars are already very expensive. I think the Model S costs somewhere in the realm of a quarter million dollars uh, for the buyers there. So I think people buying in that price tier are less price sensitive. Um, and I know uh, in Europe in general, there's definitely places that are essentially going to be banning uh, gasoline cars and diesel over the next uh, 10, 15 years. So my thought was, you know, something like, Norway has a sovereign wealth fund, you know, could the money be coming from a country like that? Right. So there was this uh, Financial Times article. Um, So yeah, that was a very prescient uh, observation. So there's this Financial Times article about all this drama. So I'll read from it here. Elon Musk took to Twitter on Wednesday to declare that he wanted to take Tesla private in a deal that would value the company at 70 billion, potentially bringing an end to his fractious relationship with Wall Street. Mr. Musk's plans were tweeted out shortly after a Financial Times report that Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund had taken a $2 billion stake in Tesla. So uh, then they go on to say, Mr. Musk's announcement came less than an hour after the Financial Times disclosed that Saudi Arabia's public investment fund had amassed a stake of 3 to 5% this year, putting it among Tesla's largest investors. Yeah, um, and what's interesting there is... like. If I'm not mistaken, Saudi Arabia plans to like move pretty significantly into solar energy for their own own consumption, and like we always think of Tesla as a uh, as a car company, but a lot of their upcoming projects are based around the Powerwall and the solar tiles and and that sort of thing. After their you know association with Solar City, so could there be any anything there? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I too want to know like who are these investors who are funding this thing. 70 billion yeah. is a giant, giant number. As far as historical deal sizes go, it's up there. It's one of the biggest probably. Yeah. I know uh, you mentioned that, hey, what if it's Satoshi, but we did the math. And right. Yeah, we did the math. That didn't make any sense. I just blurted it out because <laughs> I just felt like asking. But yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he can't afford it yet. Can't afford it yet. <laughs> give him give him a few years. <laughs> that would be hilarious if Satoshi took Tesla public in like 2025. <laughs> So one other thing that they mentioned in their press release, which I thought was kind of interesting, I thought I would ask you about this too. So SpaceX is a perfect example. It is a far more operationally efficient, and that is largely due to the fact that it is privately held. This is not to say that it will make sense for Tesla to be private over the long term in the future. Once Tesla enters a phase of slower, more predictable growth, it will likely make sense to return to public markets. So this SpaceX comment, what do you think? I mean, I, I buy it 
SpaceX was started in what, 2003? I think that sounds right. Around there. So it's a 15-year-old company. And I mean, essentially, it took them 14 years or so to be able to do reusable rockets. And I think now they have a bunch of flights planned and they're going to be able to dock with the International Space Station and basically start actually carrying payloads. But it was, you know, 14 years and who knows how much investment with no, like, I don't know what you would look at for quarterly reports for the first 10 years of SpaceX. Right, right. Uh, And you add to that, that like that particular product, at least, you know, until you get to the point where like you have launches every month or something, it feels more like, like investing in a drug company whose success depends entirely on like their one product being successful it'll make some huge multiple and like guarantee revenue streams for a while. Like Musk's whole thesis there was rockets are built the wrong way. Like because of some fundamental issues around they, the construct like design of rockets and also the lack of reuse, like, you know, space flight is 10 X or some order of magnitude more expensive than it needs to be. And it can be brought down. But a, like there was a lot of risk on just being able to execute on being able to produce the rockets then there's all the like reusable and landing stuff. And then third with rockets, like the rockets blow up and they're also planning to man space flight. So there's a high probability that like people are, you know, someone could die. Right. And that doesn't seem to lend itself to something that would do well in public markets. Right. But who knows? Yeah, we will see. I mean, the another big question I have along with who the investors would be is, I mean, it sounds like they're going to put this up for a shareholder vote, right? So yeah. uh, we will find out who those investors are. Um, hopefully, soon. have the shareholders ever voted against what Musk wants? Uh, or is it a pretty? Or is I, the board pretty? I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know what the facts are. Yeah, we'll see. So one reason that they were public and one benefit they had from public markets is that they could raise public capital, right? They could issue more shares. You know, if they need an injection of cash to last longer, et cetera, they could go to the public markets to do that or the debt markets to do that. Um, so I wonder what their plans for that will be when they go private. They can still do financings, of course, but we'll yeah. just won't be super privy to all that stuff, which is a little disappointing. Probably the most disappointing of this whole thing is that I hope that he doesn't quiet down on Twitter because he's a very interesting, enjoyable person to follow. I mean, if you just take Tesla entirely out of it, he has enough going on on Twitter for you to be thoroughly entertained. Right. <laughs> the boring company stuff, the Hyperloop stuff, the flamethrowers, the, I mean, Thailand Cave Rescue, that was a whole nother level. Oh, gosh, like, yeah. I, I think you just take Tesla out of it, and I don't think you'll be bored. <laughs> I wonder also how it'll affect uh, delivery of the of the Model 3. Yeah. Actually, I went on the configurator yesterday because I was just curious, and... Uh, Right now, it's it's showing for the higher spec models. It's it's estimating deliveries in September. So if that's true, and they've gotten turnaround times for people that are like ordering now with that were not on the wait list down to two months, that bodes pretty well. Yep. Because I know, especially for the American market, so some other car markets are much, especially in Europe, are much more used to like you go, you order the vehicle the way you want it, and then it comes, you know, six to eight weeks later. Mm-hmm. North American markets tend to prefer like build to stock rather than build to order where it like sits on the dealer lot and then you go and you buy that one. Uh, North America disproportionately buys built to stock cars 
And so being able to have a, a short turnaround time is, I think it would probably have an impact on sales in North America. Yeah. It's interesting. You sent me a, uh, an article recently about, uh, you know, Coinbase. It was a technical article about how they scale their platform for spikes in customer demand. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think we're all familiar with a lot of the Coinbase drama that went on late last year when I think they were getting like 100,000 signups a day or a week at one point. It was, it was some absurdly high number and uh, people were running into a lot of a lot of issues with stuff taking time and just scaling issues in general, both technical and on the customer service side. Yeah. No, I mean, this is this is like a regular issue with them, though, going back as far as 2013. Anytime yeah. there was a traffic, high traffic in, on their website or the price was moving, you just couldn't do anything on their website. So, but... Yeah, so they had a lot of interesting points in there. A lot of them are like very specific to their architecture. But speaking more generally, I think the big takeaway was you really need to be able to measure what's going on at all the like all layers of your stack. And the second and most important piece is like once you're in production, the sort of stuff you do locally for testing that doesn't scale well you need to replace that with an easy way of replicating a lot of real world scenarios. And that's a pretty time consuming process, but you see it at like, you know, I read the Netflix engineering blog and they have their like chaos monkey and all the derivatives. Mm -hmm. Like you see these companies, once they achieve scale, they basically need to quickly be able to replicate these traffic spikes and take their own servers down and whatnot and make sure these systems can scale and are resilient. So I, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. That's going to be particularly useful to application developers moving into the uh, crypto space mm-hmm. that are not necessarily trying to build the next Netflix or Coinbase, but uh, there's still just architectural challenges that are unique to, you know, smaller crypto applications. And I think uh, we'll cover that more in depth. But looking forward to talking about that. Yeah. So, do you get the sense that this is something that they weren't doing before, or it was like in the pipeline, but things get so busy that they don't implement it. Like, I'm just curious how some software companies think about doing this stuff. If it's afterthought or if it's like, we should, this is architecture first. I mean, so this is a hundred percent speculation from my end, just with that uh, caveat there. Yep. So their base stack looks like it started off as like Rails, MongoDB. I don't know what they're using for the front end, but you know, some JavaScript framework that has less bearing on, on the architectural stuff. And I'll probably draw some ire by saying this, but it's very hard to scale like a, your classic Rails architecture, like with just Rails and Mongo, to 10x or 100x suddenly without some like significant architectural changes or introducing new tooling. Yep. And you're seeing that in the Coinbase blog. Basically, a lot of the stuff where they're streaming in lots of data, they've had to they offload that out of the, the you know the main monolith uh, of the app. So I think the reason we see a lot of these issues for these companies is especially 2012, 2013, you built your monolith, you hooked it up to Mongo and you just deployed it on a couple of servers. And that is, it's a very time consuming process and a pretty big architectural jump to go from that to something that's more like these separate services that can scale out parts of the system. Yep. Yeah. I think I got that sense as well. I mean, early on, it seems like they had a very, you know, Silicon Valley type of build fast and break things type of attitude. And that works for some applications, right? Right. 
and it works for getting to market faster, which is always really important. Yeah. It doesn't, It where it breaks is when you end up getting way more traffic than you expected and your architecture, your fundamental underlying architecture can't handle it. So, just, And you're dealing with people's money. So the consequences are on a whole nother level. Right. So just imagine building an app in, um, not to knock on Rails, but you, say you build it on Rails and uh, it has like a little React front end and you think you can support, you know, 100,000 users. And Bitcoin's price suddenly spikes and then you have a lot more traffic coming. And it's, I, I don't know if where it was deployed, but, you know, say it was deployed on Heroku or something like that. You're limited in terms of what you can do to give your scaling a boost there because yeah. you've chosen a particular architecture, you've deployed it in a certain place. And I think Heroku gets pretty expensive once you start adding a ton of dinos, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just uh, like, you know, that's just scaling the existing architecture. But like, let's say you go from just needing to serve requests and a rake task being good enough to run like certain jobs every now and then on a timer or using, you know, some cron-like task. Mm-hmm. Now you have tons of data streaming in and you need you need some permanently long-running jobs or you need to be caching responses. So now let's say you're caching stuff, you need to set up something for caching. Let's say you have long-running jobs. Are you going to do those with something in the Ruby ecosystem or are you going to offload it to another tool? So now that makes its way into your architecture. Are you moving from a single database to having a relational database and maybe something else that can ingest a lot of that data that's, you know, not going to have to require sharding. So then like, that's what starts to happen is your app starts to fragment into these relatively different chunks. And if you don't design with that in mind, it can really make it hard. Yeah. We'll, we'll get, I have a bunch of thoughts on this that we'll uh, put together in a more structured manner and cover in a, in a, future podcast. So one topic I've been wanting to talk about for a while now is uh, IOTA. So IOTA is a new type of distributed ledger technology. Uh, It's not a blockchain. It uses its own structure called the Tangle, which uh, is basically a directed acyclic uh, graph where, you know, blockchain is a chain where each block references the previous one. In this uh, directed acyclic graph, uh, each transaction <laughs> references two uh, previous transactions. And so the, this grows as more of a web than a chain. So I'll read uh, a few snippets from the IOTA team's page about what they're trying to accomplish. So first, our vision is to enable all connected devices through verification of truth and transactional settlements which incentivize devices to make available its properties and data in real time. This gives birth to entirely new general purpose applications and value chains. So we'll get into a bit of what that means. So basically their theory is that the growth of IoT devices, uh, Internet of Things, is going to outpace broadband growth. I think they're estimating something like 75 billion IoT devices by 2025. So... What they want is through zero free transactions, these devices can share these technological resources amongst one another in real time locally in a distributed network. So the idea is you'd have this large network of uh, devices that don't necessarily have to all be connected to each other, but through to their uh, local nodes and they can share resources, they can share data, and it's all 
very rapid and relatively low cost. So this all uh, sounds well and good. I went and I read the white paper and I thought, hey, this looks pretty cool. But over time, I found a few uh, red flags technically and in the behavior of the founding team that I think is good to discuss. And I say I found, but really you were the one that first alerted me to some of these uh, issues. Yep. So just to go back a little bit in terms of what the, so say we were going to give them the benefit of the doubt, right? Forget all the other stuff. What does this tangle give you? Is it just transaction throughput? Is it give you uh, lower fee transactions? Is it less like resource heavy? Yeah. So what does uh, IOTA give you? So I'll read again off of their uh, site. Uh, We envision Mm -hmm. a new model where you pay microtransactions without fees and retain the ownership of your data, which you can sell to whomever you see fit. And then another line, anything that has a chip in it can be leased to others that have a use for it when you don't. So there's uh, two themes here throughout their their vision or mission. One is being able to uh, share data. So they really talk about you own your data and you should be able to get paid in microtransactions when you share it, whether that's for ad tech or something else. And similarly, not just data, but the actual function of these devices themselves can be leased out. So they talk about this like device uh, machine-based sharing economy. And so when you think about a machine-based sharing economy that needs, you know, has 75 billion uh, items on it, it's pretty clear that that's not going to work well on say the Bitcoin blockchain, because transactions are slow, there's a scale limitation, and the confirmation times are not going to work for uh, this sort of scenario. So what we need is rapid transaction confirmation, uh, low or free cost transactions, uh, extreme scalability. So you really, you know, if you have 75 billion devices doing lots of automated transactions, this thing needs to be able to grow very rapidly. And also a proof of work function that's a very low difficulty. So these, all these small devices can participate because these aren't all going to be, you know, GPUs or ASICs. Uh, it's, it's might be a small sensor that needs to be able to participate on this network. Yep. Before we get into all the issues, uh, just high level, like without even looking into it that deeply, just conceptually the way you've described it, you know, Bitcoin does have the issues of, a certain block size, a certain limitation of number of transactions per second, per day, whatever. And which is why second layer solutions are being built on top of it to help um, alleviate those kinds of concerns. I think the reason I was skeptical after hearing about it is basically, you know, we've talked about this a few times. We've said, you know, when you're dealing with someone else's money, there's a different sort of angle you need to take. Like if you're handling someone's money, a slow and methodical approach, no one is going to blame you for that. And I think that's what Bitcoin does. Uh, its approach towards any new large decisions are slow and methodical. When I read about this for the first time, it, it just, it didn't feel like that. So that's where my initial skepticism came from. And then that skepticism grew as all the other stuff came up, I guess you'll talk about in a second. So how do IOTA transactions work? Uh, so I mentioned that it was a, a, a graph So you can imagine this web of transactions and you want to add a transaction to it. So rather than paying um, a fee that would go, you know, in the block reward or something similar, essentially what I have to do is I have to do the computational work to validate two previous transactions. Then I can attach my transaction to the tangle. So 
what happened, I choose two tips randomly, do the verification, and now my tip is on the transaction. I hope with additional transaction activity, my transactions get verified by someone else, adding a new one, and so on and so forth. Yep. So what's interesting here is that it's not quite free. There is a cost, but it's limited to the confirmation work that's being done by the device that's participating. And more users does mean more transaction capacity. So if we have 10 times as many people, there may be 10 times as many transactions, but we also have the uh, ability to process a lot more transactions, You know, assuming these devices are coming online that can process them. That being said... The theory is that these tips that we want to attach our transactions to will be selected at random. And it turns out that that's the theory of the IOTA team, but it is possible for a malicious party with enough power to interfere with the tangle by choosing tips non-randomly in ways that are uh, advantageous to them. And we'll uh, loop back around to what that means exactly. But another... Uh, problem with uh, IOTA right now is, so the idea is that it's supposed to be this large uh, decentralized uh, distributed ledger, but because the proof of work requirements for any single transaction are so small, it would be relatively easy for, uh, you know, someone to spin up a, you know, a supercomputer and just attack the network. So what's happening right now is you do have centralization in the form of a coordinator so the coordinator is run by the IOTA team or the IOTA foundation. And it's basically a special node that creates transactions, assigns uh, them and their location so that they can't be reattached by an attacker. And uh, these transactions are called milestones. So basically, if a transaction is attached to a milestone or attached to a transaction that's attached to a milestone and so forth, it can be considered valid. So when you're attaching transactions, you need to make sure that you're attaching it to a valid transaction. But obviously the risk there is the entire system is centralized around this coordinator. And again, to give them the benefit of the doubt here, so what is the idea that they would start with this this IOTA foundation run coordinator and then the network would get decentralized as there would be other coordinators or what were they going for? I think the idea is that eventually they can just like get rid of the coordinator. Okay. So it's kind of like a bootstrap Um, mechanism for the network right now. Yeah. But it's a single server run by a single entity, you know, (laughs) and the source code has not been released. So you can't audit it for anything, which is also very concerning. Why wouldn't they release that? Yeah, I don't know. And so, you know, the coordinator is basically supposed to help against this issue that fundamentally exists with tip selection, where you can have malicious or selfish nodes that prevent certain tra- like transactions from getting confirmed in approximately equally timely manners. And so... Uh, so how does that attack work? Now, coming back to the tip selection attack. So in Bitcoin, I think we are familiar with the concept of uh, longest chain if there's a you know if there's a conflicting fork the longest chain wins now in the tangle you don't have a chain so okay. uh, it doesn't quite work the same way but you have this idea of a heaviest tangle so if you can imagine a web that's not uniform in its density you know let's say to the right even though 
it's not really directional, but like to, on the right side of the web, if you're, if gotcha. it's two dimensional and you're looking down at it, uh, you have a lot of density and then to the left, it's much more sparsely populated and someone proposes a transaction on the sparse end. And I am proposed the same transaction on the dense end. So essentially, you know, there's a risk of a double spend here. So the one that is in the heavier part of the tangle is going to be given preference as opposed to uh, a longest chain in blockchain. And then the other transaction will get orphaned. So you can have orphaned subtangles uh, within the system. So you can see where a tip selection attack could come into play here. So if you have a tangle that is very uh, dense on one side and very light on the other, and someone proposes a transaction on the lighter side due to a you know, random selection. If I'm an attacker, I can essentially propose double spends and also confirm them on one side. So there's a bunch of different detailed strategies for tip selection attacks that people have proposed, but all this is so new that we'll we'll see how it all plays out. So there was a lot of drama with the uh, with the dev team as well. So you know, we talked about some of the technical underlying issues with IOTA, but a lot of the issues people have with IOTA is actually the behavior of the team. So in some of their code, they rolled their own hashing function, which is generally considered to be, you know, that people say don't roll your own crypto. And then there was a team at MIT that found some vulnerabilities in it. And there's a huge uh, email chain going back and forth where they're behaving pretty unprofessionally. Like I think one of the devs just sent back a response like, Neha, are you drunk? you know, when they're trying to have a a technical conversation. And the other uh, side effect of this uh, vulnerability was that they took people's funds into custody and you now have to go through a manual verification process to get your funds back. So for something that's supposed to be infinitely scalable and decentralized, that's a big problem. So there's this tweet by uh, Sarah Jamie Lewis who works on, I think, privacy and security stuff. You know, basically she's referencing the quote, the IOTA team took the decision to protect IOTA token holders by taking those funds, which were at risk, into temporary custody through a snapshot. So this points to another one of the scaling problems with IOTA. So because you can imagine where you have like these billions of transactions and this graph, this graph could grow very, very, very big. And if you're running a node, you're going to run into just storage issues very quickly. And so what, how IOTA solves that problem is at every certain point in time, they just take a snapshot of the v- value rather than the history of the, all the transactions. So it's, it's like it, they would just take a snapshot of like how much Bitcoin this address has rather than all of the transactions that have led up to it mm. is at the closest Great. parallel. And then all of the nodes are supposed to up, up, you know, load that snapshot and then continue off of that snapshot. So what they basically did was froze a snapshot and you have to manually go and prove who you are to get your coins back. So that is crazy because if you look in the GitHub issues, a lot of people are missing. You just see missing IOTA balance, missing IOTA, missing all my IOTA disappeared. And it's that's kind of a mess. Yeah, I'm just shaking my head. That's so bad. I remember there also being some talk about, I think this had to do with the wallet generator how it uses some algorithm that where you shouldn't re uh, use the same address over and over again. 
Yeah, yeah. So there was a. So it had to do with their uh, seed generation. So basically, you have to manually enter an 81 character seed instead of securely generating one. And so what people were doing is just using online seed generators because like no one wants to generate an 81 character seed by hand. And so supposedly almost $4 million of user funds were stolen that way. So, you know, that's not a, a vulnerability in like the tangle or the underlying thing, but it's just like bad Bad yep. housekeeping in terms of just dealing with users. And just in general, there's been a lot of complaints about the wallet software. So network issues, loss of funds, uh, having a hard time moving funds because of transactions not going through. And then also you, you have to keep synced up with the snapshots or you're, you're not, uh, you know, you're, you're off out of sync with the network. So the other thing is, they really focused on using cryptography that can't be broken by quantum computers, but that left a different issue, like an address reuse attack. And again, I'll post uh, some more thorough uh, stuff in the show notes about what the address reuse attacks looks like. But basically they've avoided, uh, you know, they can't be attacked by quantum computers, but we've already seen these address reuse attacks. One of the users already lost $30,000 and so it's it's probably a premature optimization. Right. Yeah, like when you hear about this kind of stuff, it brings the development team into question like what are the choices they're making and why are they why are they making these choices? Why are they focusing on certain things now and other things later? I think I remember yeah. seeing uh David Sunstebo, he's the lead dev there. I think someone had posted yeah. on the IOTA Reddit like they had lost funds and he was calling them stupid, yeah. like why did you do this? Things like that. There is no need yeah. to be that way, right? Yeah. Especially when you're running what is like, I think uh, they were valued over, all the IOTO was valued over a billion dollars yeah. at one point. Like you're in charge of a pretty serious yeah. thing here. Uh, you want to hear something really crazy. So this curl hash function that was caused all these uh, security mm-hmm. issues. So uh, Sergey, I, uh, I don't know how to pronounce the last name, Ivan Cheglo, uh, the co-founder said that the flaws in the curl hash function were put in deliberately as copy prevention so that people that copy the IOTA code base can be compromised. That's ridiculous. Now tell me if you see a, a couple of flaws that in that. That is ridiculous. <laughs> what did they expect that they would, I mean, that it just it's out there and then people are, are going to clone their code and then they can... Like, you know what the backdoor is, but like, if they don't share it, no one else will know or who, I mean, who knows? That just is crazy. That's insane. That's like purposely putting (laughs) a bug in your software just to catch other people who might use it, but probably won't. Yeah. And the consequence of this uh, brilliant move was this uh, custody of user funds, because it turns out that the vulnerability, if you make something that has a vulnerability, so if people copy it, uh, your thing still has that vulnerability. <laughs> okay, you know what I want to talk about here? I want to talk about developer yeah. personalities. I know we've talked about all this oh, kind no. of stuff before, but like, so premature optimization is not even the right word for this, but it's along those lines, you know? Like you're trying to prevent something that, this copy protection thing, you're trying to prevent something that might happen, but it's that. It's like a product and technical miscalibration. 
like you have a bunch of ideas on like the technical side of what's important and how important it is. And you have a bunch of ideas on the product side and how important it is. And a independently, they're just off. And especially when like they come together, like you need some sort of cohesion in terms of like your technical decisions and your product decisions. And when you're miscalibrated on both and the two are not in sync, that's when you end up just focusing on like crazy stuff and like not focusing on things that are actually really important. I mean, so much software is built around the concept of let's build the smallest working thing first and make sure that's in a good place and then start building around it. I think, you know, one of the things that we were thinking about when we were building the learning platform was let's just make sure that we can, like, what do we care about, right? We cared about being able to add sources quickly. We cared about being able to handle, you know, I mean, we're at 120 sources right now, but we want to handle like a thousand sources, let's say, and that's not going to be an issue. User load, things like that. But when we're actually specking out, out initially, we what is like the smallest component of the software that we can build in order to prove that that we can build on top of it? And that was just getting the alert, alerting right. engine going, right? Right. With a roadmap to the ideal right. architecture. So you, there's, it's one thing like you can build the fastest thing possible, but if it's throwaway or it can't be made 10 times faster, you have a problem. You also don't want to roll out like your most idealized architecture. You want to build something simple that has a pathway to that better yeah. architecture. And that's been working yeah. pretty well for us. Yeah, it would have been silly for us to like, oh, let's build this in Rails, see if it works, and then throw it away when what we originally need is actually a pretty... Because like the interesting thing about the learning platform was that it is a complex architecture, but not insanely complex, but complex enough where you can't just have like a quick, you know, Rails app that does it, right? Yeah. But as far as, I guess what I was going for was as far as developer personalities go, you know, we see this, right? We see like people get super excited about what they're working on and that's, that's fine. But if you're building a company, right, where you're, core competency. We talked about this in the first podcast, and I think you mentioned it, where your core competency is software. That's very different uh, from a lot of other things. And then in crypto, you add on top of that, you're handling other people's money. So there's no harm in like slowing things down a little bit, asking yourself if this is a premature optimization and questions like that. Because I think it helps inform at least what it is that you're building. Yeah. Yeah, there's like a big, obviously a huge technical component, but then there is also a huge like fiscal responsibility slash security and also just like governance piece. And a lot of the latter ones are things that we see some of these teams getting really wrong. Yes. And most of these people are not Elon Musk, so they can't call their customers stupid. And actually, you know what? I should take that back. I don't think Elon has ever called any of his customers stupid. I think he calls the shorts. No, he's yeah, actually really nice. Exactly. With his he's just mean, he's mean to the shorts. Like, yeah. Like if you're like, hey, can we have such and such feature? He'll just say like, right. that's coming in two years <laughs> on Twitter. He's pretty engaged yeah. with the actual users. Did you want to talk about some of the stuff that we've been uh, adding? To yeah. Um, so Lit Platform still chugging along. We've been able to add uh, a few more exchanges to capture exchange listings and delistings. We're keeping up with the number of exchanges that are actually coming out. You know, there's so many exchanges coming out, and it's always good to keep track of the new ones and you know what coins and pairs they're adding. We have a few other things that we're going to be adding, and I think like 
broadly speaking, they have to do with the real-time on-chain analysis part of our platform. That'll be good. That's not, not just like exchange data, but also the kind of data you would care about to see uh, you know, big transactions, where transactions are flowing, who's buying what, uh, who's selling what, things like that. We keep updating our semi-regular newsletter with these updates. So it will li- we'll leave a link to that newsletter in the show notes and you can take a look at the, an archive of our newsletter and see, and if you sign up, you'll be able to see what else we're planning to add. But yeah, another news. So we're also on Spotify. That was pretty exciting. We just, we, we didn't get an email about it or anything. I think I would just logged into my, uh, we were logged into our Libsyn account. We were just looking around and there was a Spotify section. Suddenly we realized, oh, we're in Spotify. So we'll link that in the show notes if you prefer to listen there. So you have that option right now. So we're on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and Libsyn. And I think we're supported in a lot of the major podcast players. But if there's some other source that you'd like us to be on, just uh, just let us know. And the other thing, like uh, for future podcasts, there's so much stuff going on in this space. And we can only, like in an hour, we can only cover so many things. And every time we record, I'm always so surprised like how quickly this hour goes. So, uh, yeah, I think it'll be good to like focus on a couple like big topics like we did with IOTA today and Tesla. So I was just thinking through like some other topics in the future and, you know, let me know guys, if these are interesting to you, they're interesting to me. So I think potentially it'd be interesting to you. Uh, one of the topics I wanted to go over was uh, galaxy digital. It's the merchant bank that Mike Novogratz is building. So they went public on the Canadian uh, stock exchange and there's some the Canadian version of the SEC is Cedar there's some uh, filings on there we could probably get into do a deep dive there and understand what they're up to um, and one thing Faison I think we should do at some point is try to do like some live installs and talk about uh, the UX of some different D apps like stuff like Augur or CryptoKitties okay. like yeah. uh, actually walk through the install and just our experience with it real time, I think might be kind of interesting. And then maybe, yeah. Yeah. And then like a a summary of what we thought, like we should try Augur and then uh, that that's the, uh, the prediction market. Um, So we set one up. I heard, I think with them, you actually need to have the full Ethereum chain in order to use it. So basically you need the rep token. It's Augur's token to make a market. And then you can bet on any market just using ether. Um, you don't need a rep token for that, but to make a market, I think you need rep. So we should learn all that stuff because I think it's pretty interesting. It'll be interesting to see which D apps do well and take off. And um, I have a feeling that they're uh, just by using MetaMask and like a few other things. I feel like the UX is just not there right now. So it'll be. I think it, I think we can figure out some cool stuff uh, to do there, and probably just some more de- technical deep dives like we did, did with IOTA today. I think that was pretty helpful and uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, we're also all ears for any other topics you all want to hear. So uh, please do get in touch. You can email us at podcast.quantlayer.com. And we're also on Twitter at Quantlayer. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.